Hello everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, your host Samuel Elliott. Tonight I got a great opportunity to speak to a writer, Anna George, regarding her now third novel, Tipping. Tipping is centred around a sexting scandal at at a sort of elite school, elite prestigious sort of um, expensive school that you could probably imagine. It's a fictional school, but obviously it's eerily relatable to wherever you're listening to this from. I'm sure there's a great many schools around your area which... Uh, the setting would be relatable or seemingly similar to. So the story is told from the perspective of three people, one being a father of one of the teenage boys involved, and his wife is another perspective, as along with the other uh, mother of the other person or one of the girls involved in the sexting scandal. So I don't want to give too much away. The discussion or the discourse that we had was very robust. We kind of started to touch on a lot of really, really big things that are sort of uh, still very much poignant contemporary within uh, society as we know it now um, that I don't want to kind of give away too much. But yeah, so thank you very much for Anna George for talking to me about her new novel, Tipping. And please have a listen. I'm going to also post the links to uh, Anna's book, Tipping, obviously this particular one, and her other two novels that you guys can pick up there from the good folks of Penguin Random House. But for now, I just want you to give a big digital round of applause to Anna George talking to me about her new novel, Tipping. Anna George, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you going this evening? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. Happy to have you on. Glad to have you on. Uh, I wanted to start first and foremost with an oldie but a goodie question, which is asking where the idea for tipping start stemmed from. Was it a particular image? Was it an experience? Was it just a theme that you wanted to explore? Where did it kind of originate from? Oh, look, it came from a few different places, but I would say my first book, What Came Before, concerned a man who strangles his wife. And after people read the book, they asked me, what can we do to not create young men who turn into men who do this to their partners? And I thought that was a really good question and I'm raising sons so I wanted to think about how can we make sure we raise our young boys um, to not be misogynist and to not be violent and aggressive and to have a range of emotions and know how to manage them. So that was sort of the beginning of thinking about it. Um, but coupled with that, I wanted to write something light and, um, and playful. So I had two very different um, ideas at work there. Um, and so I spent some time trying to figure out how to get the tone right to write a story that talks about shaking up a lot of men and women in society and gender inequality and raising, you know, wholehearted, um, emotionally intelligent young people so they can create a fairer, more equal, respectful world. Um, so I had all these sort of big ideas, but I also wanted to have the humour. So I had a combination of ideas at play in the beginning. Excellent. Tell me and tell our listeners what, uh, what Carmichael Grammar, the school is, that environment uh, at the beginning of the book. What, what, what sort of place is that? Sure. Well, that's the school my character's three sons go to. And it is a Bayside private school, which is co-ed, but it used to be a boys' school. So it's got a bit of a hangover in its culture um, from the old boys' school days. Um, so there are girls there now, and they're probably not there in completely equal numbers. Um, but it's gone through that transition of bringing girls onto the, onto the campus or onto the school grounds. So it's pretty traditional nevertheless. And there are definitely some attitudes and some uh, a, a cultural issues there, I guess, um, that uh, don't speak to equality between the genders. 
No, definitely not. Um, what about the, the so there's a, there's a few different characters' perspectives that we follow throughout, but predominantly um, there's Liv and Jess. And I wanted to know how you went about, because they're, they're very different characters in themselves, but they obviously they, they kind of find, uh, they resonate with each other as the story progresses. But they are both the parents, respective parents of the teenagers that are embroiled within the sexting sort of scandal that arises. How did you go about writing these two sort of, uh, from at least from within this context diametrically opposed within the, the sexting incident, how did you go about writing those sort of characters and how did they resonate with you? Yeah, look, I was interested in exploring sexting from the parents' point of view and having parents who are confronted by their teenagers' involvement in this practice. Um, and so I chose to have a, a mother of a boy and a mother of a girl. So Liv is the mother of three sons, Jess is the mother of one child, and that is Grace. Um, so I went about creating them inspired in part, you know, characters are all um, to varying degrees, shavings of yourself or, you know, it's a bit like you shave off a few cells and you put them in a different environment and they grow into a, a separate beast, but they come from you originally. And Liv is, um, you know, she's a, a passionate um, feminist mother who's raising three sons and wants them to be decent people. So she's a bit horrified at first to learn that one of her sons has been somehow involved in this sexting scandal, which is in fact an Instagram account that's been put online and says nasty things about girls. It's not explicit um, in its images, but it's um, highly you know, offensive in what's been written and his involvement is sort of unclear but she's horrified to learn that he's even remotely attached to it and I explored her because um, tipping was inspired by a true story of an Instagram account in my neighborhood um, and one of the mums was a mum of one of the girls but she was um, very strong and vocal in her outrage that her daughter had been involved um, and wrote about it on a neighborhood page um, and um, was quite feminist and strong in her opinions. And I was really fascinated by her reaction. I thought I'd probably maybe react similarly, you know, so maybe I'll create a character who has sons though. So she's really compromised by, oh my God, what has my son done? I'm trying to raise these people and has he actually become that boy? Um, and so I kind of, that woman that was uh, in real life, a mother um, involved in a, in a similar situation became in, in the way, in a way, inspiration for the two characters. So she was inspiring um, the female, um, the girl's involvement, um, her mother, as well as the boys. I split her in two. So I had created the character Jess, who does put her outrage on a neighbourhood Facebook page and do some of the things that this mum in real life did. And then I created um, Liv, who takes the, the male um, child's... Um, story through and they're really different but they're ultimately very passionate about their children and about raising um uh you know happy you know well-adjusted um children but they're grappling with how to do that in their different ways and one of them's very i guess intellectual in that she's alive intellectually and thinks about things and reads lots of books and tries to work out what's going on whereas the other mum's not like that at all she just has a visceral reaction to the horror of her daughter being involved um and so they're quite different in their backgrounds and in their preoccupations but they do find this common ground together through the book it's interesting that you mentioned about there's there's real life cases that have uh, that have served to inspire i wondered how much you thought now and it was somewhat explored um throughout but the disconnect between what uh, parents think of their child or this sort of uh, understanding that they have of their, of their child's character 
and the actual goings on of that particular child, albeit young person's life. Do you think that that's something that's still uh, going on? Because obviously with the advent of technology kind of enabling the sexting, it's also enabled parents to kind of see a lot more or open a window a lot more into the lives of their teenagers. So do you think that this is something of a dying out and parents becoming a lot more informed about what their children are doing? Or do you think that there still might be a bit of head in the sand type situation? I guess I can't speak for parents as a mass, but... I would say that we still, to varying degrees, know other people and know our children. We have access to their technology, whether people will take the step of exploring what they're looking at with their kids' knowledge or not. Um, some people do, some people don't. Um, and I think if you want to kind of take it um, to the nth degree, we've got Chanel Contos posting a petition of uh, all these horrible sexual assaults and um, rapes and whatnot. Um, lots of people putting forward what's happened to them, and I would question how aware the parents of the individuals involved there particularly I would say the boys parents how aware are they of what their mm. children are getting up to on weekends I mean I can't speak to that um obviously I haven't surveyed all the parents but you know you would think that there'd be some pretty shocked parents to learn that their sons are the ones that are being um that are involved in these um events at parties coming home um, having done these dreadful things I mean there'd be a lot of um despair if that were the case that parents were aware so at what point are parents made aware of the worst case scenario of their children's behavior i don't know and, and given how prevalent it appears to be this sort of behavior I, I maybe they're i don't know their heads in the sand I, I can't i can't say but i've got my own children and um you know you they leave your home and you hope they leave with your values and with the messaging that you've given them but they're going to make their own decisions and they're young they're adolescents they're going to make mistakes so you're not going to be completely aware of everything they do out there in the world. Um, certainly technology also opens up them to a lot of influences that we didn't grow up with, um, which you don't have control over directly, other than taking the technology off or blocking sites or whatever. And as they get older, I guess that's more and more difficult. So I said there's a combination of heads in the sand, denial, you know, gravely hoping that your sons are not the, not the people out there doing these things to these girls at parties and... Um, and you know breaking the law and disrespecting people yeah it's, i mean it's kind of um varying scales of what every parent's worst nightmare is but i would imagine that yeah to, to learn that uh, your son's been doing some pretty deplorable reprehensible or depending again sliding scale outright evil um activities there was certainly an element i found and i'm not surprised that you're raising boys because there was the uh, it was very authentic within the the, the scope of particularly with uh giant oscar and that was probably their, their sort of dynamic and the way it changed and how they sort of changed throughout was one of the ones in which interested me the most. And I wanted you to kind of maybe talk a little bit about it because there was a couple of things I liked. First and foremost, I liked that you'd captured that they were at this sort of period where it's they're completely growing out of that final kind of vestige of childhood. Uh, there was a few scenes that reminded me of that. Um, Jai freaking out with the blood, for instance, that sort of thing, kind of harkening back to a childhood sort of moment. But also their sort of personality. So they go from, and you made mention of it at one point as well, as they were twins, but they were sort of no longer twins. They weren't instantly recognisable. You couldn't tell that they were twins anymore. And I feel like you yourself wanted to explore quite a lot uh, with them as these two characters and their different um, disparate personalities. So can you talk a little bit about what you sort of wanted to capture with Giant Oscar and how you went about doing that? 
Sure, sure, sure. Funny thing is when I talk about um, those twins, I call him Jay. It's completely wrong, I think, but I wrote it as Jay in my oh, head. Really? Oh, really? Oh. By all means, you're pronouncing the it the right I. way. Oh, I can't change it now. So um, it is it is Jai, but um, okay, for me, sure. it's Jay. And one of those people have mis- misspelt their own child's name. Um, so for me, these boys, they're 14. They're very similar and aligned at the beginning of the book, um, pretty much. But then through the process of um, Jay going through this journey, um, being exposed as being involved in this Instagram account and the questions mm. around what he did or didn't do, and Oscar feels a bit left out by not being privy to all of that and also to the fact Jay now has a girlfriend, um, and Oscar goes through his own journey around gender and gender expectations and norms. Um, I was really determined to have, make the children in my book, you know, fully formed characters mm. that have their own journeys because often I think you get this stock generic teenage character that walks through a house in a movie or in a book and they, you, there could be anybody that just don't have a personality differentiated from any other teenager. So I was really determined to make my, my boys in this book um, clearly, you know, having their own personalities and frailties vulnerabilities they both have those and so does cody who's nine um their little brother but given jay is involved in the sort of drama at the beginning of the book he has this sort of instant um intensity in his story but then oscar kind of is on the fringes watching and goes through a journey too and i was really determined in writing a book about gendered issues to have the male's perspective as well i've got duncan the dad character has his own point of view as well as jess and Liv. And I wanted Oscar to go through a completely different experience of adolescence and peer influence to what Jay goes through. And Jay becomes, I guess, without giving too much away, a bit more aligned with his mum as time goes mm-hmm. on. Whereas Oscar gets further and further from the fold and she kind of lives, you know, dropping, juggling a lot of balls and kind of drops Oscar as a ball at one point there. And if anything, tosses him over to Duncan to look after and that doesn't go well for a while there. So I wanted Oscar to have, um, a lot of confusion about who he is as a young man or, you know, an adolescent and who's he becoming and what works and what doesn't work and um, has his own experience with girls, which doesn't go well um, and grapples with what it means to be a young boy who you know, begins to be interested in cooking and stands up for himself in class and that ends up taking him to a, a different place with different peers. So I was really determined to have their journeys very different um, but obviously they want to both grow and, you know, ideally you have them having some common ground again at the end. That was the intention. But I, I, felt, I felt for Oscar because he was, he was the dropped ball and he did um, have his struggles along the way, which I also think, um, I hope, are realistic. Yeah. You did so. And you also just touched on then someone that I wanted to also go into a little bit of detail because it's interesting you said you wanted the male perspective as well. And I do get that. And you chose Duncan. So Duncan is an interesting character as well because Duncan's story, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that from his perspective, but he had this whole thing going on with his own sort of uh, job within the law firm, um, Winston, and I don't know how to pronounce the second name. Of, sorry? Euland. Clearly I Euland. make these things up at the moment, so let's just call it Euland. <laughs> Tell me about him. Tell me about him because, because he, look... He's a complex character. You've mentioned about how you want you wanted to create these realizable characters that are, you know, or realize these characters that are fully formed and dimensional, which you have, you have, I can show you have. But um, I wanted to know about the inherent sort of pitfalls or trials, tribulations you might have faced with writing Duncan, because obviously I get the vibe that you definitely want to include him in there. But uh, he wouldn't have been the easiest to write, I would imagine. 
Well, I used to be a lawyer and only sort of briefly, really. And I do keep circling back on that for some reason. So most of my, <laughs> my people who work in offices end up lawyers. So hence Duncan's the lawyer. And they're also ultimately ended up being kind of unhappy lawyers. So mm. clearly I've got some issues there from my past. Duncan, Duncan is a, a decent person who feels like he's doing what's expected of him in supporting the family and attending to their financial needs. So it's pretty traditional in that way. Um, but he also doesn't do a lot of questioning. So Liv is very questioning and curious um, where he's not. He's just doing what I'm meant to do, following on the path. Didn't really think I had a chance to or an option to do it differently. Tricky is not to think about too much. Don't carry the stress from work in your head too much. Just try and tune it out and go through your day, um, which isn't ultimately that satisfying, I don't think, for him. Eventually, he doesn't realise that till he has a few key um, moments where he confronts his life and the choices he's making. And that was important to me because I'm quite interested in this idea of work and family and you know, recreation. And I want to say work-life balance because obviously work is a part of your life. But the whole um, kit and caboodle and how we structure that, I think, you know, it's very easy to jump on the conveyor belt and just do what's expected of you and hop off at the end, you know, 40 years older and think what happened. Mm. Um, but you can change it and mix it up. And the book's about the possibility of change and making tweaks to achieve impactful change in your life. And so I needed Duncan to go through that journey. Um, and I wanted him to really start questioning the way he'd structured his life in terms of how much time he spent working, how he worked and what that got for him, what he got out of it. Um, so that's the process he went through. And also um, the element around gender um, imbalance in his workplace where he has a number of partners and none of them are men. So he's challenged by Liv to find a female partner while you're at it, while we're getting more balance at home and trying to sort the boys' school out. Let's just go everywhere and fix all elements of our life in terms of gender equality. So he's a bit like, oh, surely it's not that bad and things are pretty good at work and there are lots of junior women and, you know, women on the rise. Okay, maybe they don't actually get to the top. Not sure what happened there anyway. Go back to work. So mm. he's kind of forced to look at that a bit more closely um and make some choices there which have an impact on how he works as well so i was really keen to make sure duncan's in there i always seem to write three points of view in my books this is my third book and my third three-hander um and i wanted duncan to be sympathetic vulnerable engaging and relatable um i've had some comments from some you know male friends that you know he should stand up to live more or um, you know, he should be white knuckled with stress because that's what it's like when you carry the load, which it may well be for some people, but he's not. And he's actually been inspired by a guy I used to work for who did sort of say, I just learned to just tune it out. Cause I was saying, how do you live with this stress? You know, I'm terrified of making a mistake. And he's like, oh, I just teach myself not to think about it, which is mm -hmm. kind of what Duncan's mantra becomes. Just don't think about it too much and keep going until, you know, life forces you to think about things. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I like I like the inclusion of him because it just it, he obviously felt very different to to the um, to the other two predominant other two obviously both female characters, and I was wondering if if you would put him in there to yeah to to give obviously the male perspective and to challenge yourself somewhat and see if that uh, could then be achieved particularly if what you were talking about with then not just having within this school environment but then obviously the same issue has arisen albeit kind of in a worse sort of class glass roof type situation within the law firm itself. So that, no, that's interesting. Um, I wanted to, I feel like, I don't know, I want to ask if you uh, had done a lot of research for this because a lot of the stuff that um, I'm assuming 
she's fictional, but again, I'm sure she's based on myriad different uh, real life people. But Dr. Vic Cardo, Cardo? I call her Cato. Cato. Cato, <laughs> tomato. Um, Yep. But yeah, all, all the stuff in which she implements, you know, a lot of it, uh, I was wondering if, if this was uh, research that you had sort of collated when you were kind of like maybe at the, at the planning stage and if it was stuff in which you've like case studies have actually been done on it because if this hasn't been implemented, I was thinking in my head the whole time, if it hasn't actually been implemented, then it certainly should because I'm sure that it would kind of garner as well sort of uh, beneficial uh, to the betterment of wherever it was sort of implemented, particularly within high schools. So yeah, research, how'd that go about? Sure. Um, look, I love reading lots of um, books, you know, the, in the social sciences, um, psychology, and, and I kind of discovered this whole world of behavioural design, which I'd never heard of, which is this idea that you can change people's behaviour by understanding, having insight into how the mind works. You can change people's behaviour on a wholesale level by changing the environment they work in or, or work practices, um, make physical interventions and changes in the environment or introduce different ways and how you do something can get a, a behavioural outcome rather than having to talk people into doing things all the time, which I'm sure has merit as well in terms of um, educating people about things. But this is certainly a massive big toolkit here that we could use. Um, and I did do a lot of research um, while I was writing the book. I wanted to create change at a school. I wanted substantial culture change at a school. I was stumped for a bit on how to make that happen without uh, an inspiring teacher coming in and just doing it on a one-on-one -on -one kind of basis in a classroom until I discovered this um, behavioural design. But really, I discovered the story of Harvard Business School, which is um, obviously a very well-known place. But in about 2010, 2011, it had a gender equality problem in that there were um, really smart men and women from around the world coming to Harvard to do their MBAs. And um, a relatively new dean was put in place and he walked around and said to everybody, what are the things that keep you up at night? And they all said gender, gender equality. It's not working here. It's not successful. And they dug into what was going wrong and they had a gender grade gap. The men did better in grades. Um, the, um, there had been a mass exodus of um, female faculty, didn't want to work there. It was hard to attract women to work there. And um, women, men won the prestigious prizes given to the top 5% of students at the end of the two years and just had a better time at the course. And they introduced, um, through gathering lots of feedback and gathering their data and trying to understand what was going wrong, they learned why there was a gender grade gap and had to do with class participation and men dominating the classes and women not and the way they'd structured the classes so they broke them into smaller groups. They coached women on how to participate more effectively. They coached the staff on how to teach more effectively. Um, men were passing around notes about the women in class, sexualizing sort of notes, rating their looks, the sort of thing that teenage boys do. They stamped down on that. They had lots of conversations with everybody about culture and who we want to be and how we want to be. Long story short, they did manage to significantly change the culture after two years. So the gender grade gap narrowed. Women were winning those prizes at the end of the time in greater numbers than they had. And both men and women had a better time at the school. And today, the gender grade gap's gone and the satisfaction gap's gone. So that was really inspiring to me to learn that with a lot of rigorous energy and data gathering and um, appraisal of what we're doing and what's working and not what's, what's not working, it can actually make changes. And one of the things they did with that classroom participation, they put note takers in the back of every class to take notes of everything that was said and presented it to the professors and staff. Because sometimes they weren't remembering when women did participate, they didn't note it down. So just by gathering the data and analysing exactly what's happening and where there's a breakdown and then putting in strategies to address that, 
they actually change the culture and the outcome. So I discovered that online through researching gender inequality and how can we change it at schools and there are all these lovely articles written, you know, nine years ago. Um, and then I discovered this behavioural design field, which is all about targeted interventions to shift behaviour. And then I discovered kind of late in the piece an amazing book called What Works? Gender Equality by Design by Iris Bonet. And she is a bit of a guru at Harvard Kennedy School. And it's all about understanding unconscious biases um, and how the mind works and how so much of the training you do, for example, diversity training doesn't really work. They spend billions apparently in the US on this. And it doesn't actually lead to more diverse leadership teams um, because people are, are locked into these unconscious biases often and you can't, it's really hard to de-bias people's minds, but you can put in interventions to change behavior, which overrides the bias, if you like. So I was so excited when I found all of that to put in my book and pretty much almost everything in the book has come from the Harvard um, case study, if you like. Um, years ago, The Tipping Point was a really influential book on me by Malcolm Gladwell. So he refers to different studies in there, the results of which I've used in my book. Um, Iris Bonet's got different studies that she refers to in there and she talks about changing the images on the walls and how that affects um, the people in the classrooms, particularly young girls and women are hugely affected by seeing role models of strong women. And you change the images in the classroom and it has an actual measurable effect on the minds of the young women in terms of how they behave and the links they make between, you know, women in STEM, for example, if they see gender neutral images in a, in a science lab rather than Star Wars and Star Trek all over the walls. So, you know, they're all these, I'm really passionate about learning about findings of studies and understanding how the mind works and using evidence-based research in my stories, using those findings and putting them into a story and dramatizing it and making it fun and interesting to show people what's possible. So that's where a bunch of all of that came from. Excellent. Well, I, I definitely got, yeah, I got the impression throughout that there was a lot of research that had been done. And so much of it was like uh, eureka type situations where you're like, oh, why did I not think of that? Or something that's just something that's just so simple. Um, and you, you think, why has that not yet already been implemented? Like in terms of the, the um, ensuring, yeah, that there's, there's figures, uh, female figures of um, various people within their fields that are, you know, successful and all, all these sort of things that just, I just, at the time that I read it, I was like, well, that's something that makes perfect sense. And the, yeah, the STEM, like the, the recording of collating data and then presenting that back and saying, well, um, uh, women are not being acknowledged within this class they're not allowed to speak or this or that. And then altering that sort of behavior, you can change entirely. And there was even one case study, it was a little bit unrelated, but it was about the there was a university case study that was done about raising the university fees and people were encouraged to nod. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then other people yeah. nodded at that and said, yeah, yeah, that's good. We want to raise the university fees, which is like, it's scary, Anne George. It's scary a little bit as well in terms of what yeah, you can, yeah. you know, with um, collective consciousness and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But within mm -hmm. your novel and within the context of this, you can bring about, prompt about major societal change and to the betterment mm -hmm. of society within this mm -hmm. sort of scope. So I think that that's good. Absolutely. It's funny. Look, you mentioned that nodding one. I mean, that is based on a real study, but I don't know that you're really allowed to walk around getting people to nod um, to, you know, to tell them or to nod to certain things so they absorb the information that you're telling them while they're nodding. That was, I think, a study that talked about um, how behaviour changes thinking rather than thinking changing behaviour. If you get people to nod, it changes their attitude to what they're hearing. So I thought that was fascinating, but perhaps a little manipulative if you just got classrooms of kids to sit around nodding and telling them all sorts of stuff. But so I wouldn't exactly follow everything in the book, although it's based on a real science. It might be a little bit of a, a, bit of, a, bit of a wild card to bring that in um, legitimately. But 
certainly it's based on a real study. Um, so no, I'm really excited by it as well. And I think one of the points about behavioural design is everything in our society that's man-made has been designed by someone. Someone has created our workday and someone has designed when we have breaks or um, what's on the walls. All of these things have been built and we need to look at everything through the lens of gender equality and think, well, is that right? That I think all the, I don't know, there's some news item recently about the statues up in Canberra outside Parliament House. I think there are more blue healers or something than women or indigenous people you know how did that happen okay it's happened over time well let's fix it let's let's correct that and why don't women feel welcome and um empowered walking around canberra and parliament maybe it's got something to do with all the men on the walls everywhere you know just because it's been like that doesn't mean we need it to reflect that today we are not that today and we don't want to be predominantly male today so there's just so much that can be done if people just put their minds to it you know i've had people saying oh this is a bit of a you know, a thinking person wouldn't believe this is possible. It's absolutely possible. And it happened at Harvard. And I mean, Harvard's not fixed. I'm sure there are still ongoing issues there as there are everywhere. But there's really, this book is called What Works? Because things do work. You know, you just have to implement them, have the will and the follow through, get your data and consistently evaluate what's happening and, and things can shift. So that's so exciting. It is so exciting. And yeah, kind of like what you said, I feel like, a lot of it stems from um, within these sort of environments across the board, not just high schools and industries, but it just seems to be, yeah, absolutely. It was a big boys, it was a, um, an, a big old boys club. And that's because it's been the way it's sort of time honored. So there's nothing that's really happened to challenge or change that. And then that's kind of just, uh, just accepted because it's just so deeply ingrained within wherever it is. Everyone says, well, that's just the way it is. And then what it kind of breeds is, is, is in addition to the misogyny, but probably what it stems from is just this apathy or just, even though it's, it's not done so with acceptance, people still don't want it. It's just, oh, well, that's just the way it is. So to challenge it and say, like you said, oh, some people will say, you know, be skeptical and say, no, well, you can't, you can't change these things. You can, you literally can. It's just, all it takes is just, it's just the, 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 the aptitude to do so and, you know, the discipline. Mm, that's it. The will to do it and the follow through to know what to do and to actually do it. And in um, What Works, Iris Bonet talks about the low hanging fruit of behavioural design, these easy things like changing what's on your walls. And I mean, she's even at Harvard Kennedy School, she looked up at the walls, which is uh, full of leaders on the walls. They were all men. You mm. know? It's like, oh my God, we're at, we're at a leadership environment and all the men, all the leaders are men. So we've got to correct that. And should students come to her and say, yeah, in the last bunch of people we've had giving talks to us over the last two years have been predominantly men so it's just so insidious like okay but we can change that um all these things we can that's you know that's not going to cost anything to change who you get to come and speak to you to make sure that it's balanced um and who's on the walls and who's in your science labs and who people learn about in primary school and you know there's just so much that we can do to shift it you just need the will and you need you know people prepared to be uncomfortable to, to say, I, I want to make this change here, you know, and get supported to do that, have the confidence to push it through. I guess that's also kind of what makes it so important to do that within the high schools, yeah, because that's going to be the new, the next generation of leaders. So you really need to address that issue there because then in theory, if you can do that within one generation, you could kind of eradicate or completely rectify the situation. Again, it's not beyond the, beyond the realms of possibility as long as, you know, you will united in this sort of mind don't scoff at it mm, well you need to shift what's normal it's mm. not normal to have i mean one of the things that i find extraordinary about school and then beyond school is that school you know a co-ed school 
I think I refer to this in my book, you have leaders, you have captain, boy captain, girl captain, boy captain, vice captain. It's all very balanced and equal. It's uh, perfectly acceptable and that's the way it should be. But then you leave school and all of a sudden you don't have perfectly mm. balanced uh, male and female leaders moving through. All of a sudden the rules are different and that's a bit shocking and a bit odd. Why is it, okay? you know, we don't stack our schools like that because I think the kids would be in uproar. That's not fair. Why are there all the boys in the leadership team and there are no girls? I don't know. I haven't got an answer for that. So, but then, you know, I went to work in a law firm. Why is it predominantly male and why don't I feel that comfortable here? And why is the culture just not um, attractive to me as a young woman coming into it? Just looking back now, I thought, you know, it was the law per se, but it wasn't. It was the environments as well that I was in that just didn't seem like I was going to fit in there. And there are a handful of female partners. And again, most of them at the top didn't look happy as well. So there was that too. But I think we need to shift what's normal. And I think also young people, I can't speak exactly for today, not being a young person today, but I've read around it and talked to people. It's still a bit of a shock when you get out of, out of school and into the workforce to just realise how gendered it is um, and what you're up against um, for women. Yeah. I feel like there was still an, uh, a strong feeling of hope throughout that, that things can get better and are slowly getting better, not to the extent in which they should be. But I felt that that's, that's what I picked up throughout Anna is that, that there was the, that you believe that obviously with everything that you've outlined all the research in which you've done within the confines or context of this one particular novel, this one school, obviously it prompts major change. So with your research that you've done from what you've experienced, lived experience, do you think that it is the situation is getting better? Or is it still, obviously there's still quite a lot. No, I'm asking the big questions now. I'm getting in there. But what, what do you think? Truthfully, truthfully, what do you think from what your, your own empirical experience and from what you've researched? What do you Well, the funny thing about being a writer is you sort of sit on your own in a room and think. So I'm not out there in the world enough. But um, I certainly think that there are pockets of really enlightened um, organisations and um, communities. Um, but, you know, if you look at, statistics of crime against women and you know the sexual harassment and the, the prevalence of it all um i don't think that's getting better but i think the awareness is certainly shifting and the tolerance for um poor behavior from men is certainly changing but one of the things that i'm really um passionate about is one leaving people in a hopeful state with this book um and optimistic and two this idea about tipping points that um we haven't touched on yet but how you know, I talk about tweaks in the book and how they can be impactful. And often a tipping point is brought about by something that's like a tweak and a, you know, a tipping point being a moment after which everything changes and rapidly. Mm. And the other thing about tipping points is this contagious element um, to it as well. And I think I'm hopeful that we can have change and that positive change and positive positivity and respect, these things can be contagious. So at the school, that's something that happens that, when things start to change, the mood of the school changes and the attitude of people to each other changes. And I believe that is absolutely, absolutely possible um, if it's fostered. Um, and you walk, walk through different schools and you feel a culture of a school. You, you can feel, oh, I don't want to go to this school. Oh, I like the way this place feels. Um, and they're very similar to each other, but they've created something that you can feel. And I believe we can create... Um, shifts in behavior which then can spread you know they can spread um so i'm hopeful about that through teaching people how to be it's like you know resilience and gratitude 
um, respect, I think we can bring that to the fore as much as we have these ideas about the need to be resilient and to be grateful and to be mindful. I think respect and consciously enacting respect in your life towards your peers is something we can encourage and spread. Well, talking about some very, very big issues. Um, how did you, from the outset, how did you go about including all that in your book? Because I assume that you might have had some, some idea of where you wanted it to go. And the whole time I was reading it, I marveled as well about how many kind of uh, characters had speaking roles as it were. Like there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of different characters with a lot of different kind of overlapping coinciding narratives and dynamics that are going on. And yet it all kind of serves to yeah, pose these sort of questions that you're talking about and ultimately impart this sort of sense of hope. So how did that sort of go with writing it? Did, is that something that kind of came through multiple... You mentioned somewhere in the acknowledgement it takes years, years for you to write a book. So is that something that came with constantly redrafting over years or how do you go about doing that? Because just the enormity of it is staggering. Mm-hmm. Look, originally, actually, look, the answer is yes, I do lots and lots of rewriting. This book took me about four years. Um, the original version, the original draft, if you like, of this book, I probably had about 10 points of view, <laughs> 10 point of view okay. characters. I was just playing around and having fun and seeing where I went. And then I, I kind of thought, oh, my God, I, it's just too much for me. I can't do it like that. I need to strip it back and find someone I really want to travel with and hop into that head, which I did. And then I kind of collapsed characters into each other and um, wove them back in. So I, but it's so funny. I don't actually, um, a few people have said there are lots of characters and maybe I should have like a family tree or a flowchart or something at the beginning, but um, I didn't notice there were so many characters. Obviously we've got um, two main families and friends of the families and the, and the staff at the school and Vic Cato. I mean, there are definitely numbers of people there, but the, you know, the book reveals itself to me over drafts and drafts. Mm. And I, I've said this before, but it's a bit like you throw a lump of clay in your first it's very ugly and you're lucky if it kind of hangs up and stays there but then I walk around it and look at it and try and figure out what's interesting to me what's working what I can pull out of it more and then you start molding and shaping and shaping until the thing reveals itself to you even more and then you kind of know what you're doing um or sort of hopefully and that's the way it works for me so I just keep going and going until it begins to have a really interesting form and then I know what I'm doing and how to you know create the turning points and the tension points and the characters that um, that capture my imagination. Yeah, yeah, it does take a lot of rewriting. I'm definitely, definitely with you when it comes to the, the rewriting, but um, I like the analogy of the, the clay, tossing the clay and hopefully it sticks there. That's a very good one. That's very good. I haven't heard that before. Um, I always like to know, and I'm going to borrow an expression you just used because you used the titular tipping. What was the tipping point? for you when it came to writing? Because obviously I strongly suspect that you were, you mentioned that you were a lawyer briefly. I dare say you were probably earning quite a good living from doing so. Um, but what was the tipping point that sort of prompted you or brought about you wanting to write? And then what sort of challenges have you faced? Because I dare say, I mean, so fortunate to speak to you now, but I'm sure there have been a few times where you really picked up the pen and said, no more. So what... Um, what sort of things? There's any particular standout moments, Anna, that you've looked at and okay. gone, I triumph. I've always, always wanted to write. As a kid, I wanted to write. As a teenager, I loved reading and writing. And through school, I was encouraged by English teachers. But at the end of school, I didn't know what to do with my writing. And so I sort of stumbled into, into university. 
And then I stumbled out again and I didn't really enjoy my law degree much. But anyway, I did it. I did an economics degree too. Don't ask me why. And then I found myself in a really big law firm thinking, oh my goodness, this is not my life like that song. How did I get here? And really the epiphany was, I think I was my 26th birthday, sitting in a you know corner office in the Rialto building because I was sort of squatting in a senior partner's office while he worked somewhere else. And it was about 10 p.m. at night on a summer's evening. And I thought, oh, my God, there's no one here. It's my birthday. It's a Monday night. What I'm am wrong. I doing here? It was just wrong. Everything about it was wrong. So that was the beginning of me thinking I'm going to leave and find my joy. What is that? Okay, let's go back to writing and how can I make that happen? And found a writing course, got a part-time job in legal publishing. And off I went. And seriously, when I left that law firm, they gave me a pen and said, good luck, you know, as a writer. <laughs> and here I am almost double the age I am, double the age I was then. And um, it's been a really long and circuitous journey from that to here because writing is a very challenging endeavour. You know, I did it as a really, you know, as a young person and just thought, great, I'll, I'll dash off a draft, I'll send it off and then I'll be a writer and it'll smash it out of the park and I'll live like, you know, John Grisham or whoever else is there that was a lawyer and became a really successful writer. And that actually didn't happen. So... That took me a long time to recover from that. Um, I sent one draft of one book off that I wrote when I was that writing student and got one rejection and then ran away to my hole for a couple of years and didn't come out again because I just wasn't ready for the rejection. So it's a very long and potentially fraught path, I reckon, as a writer. Um, some people have a very different experience and do knock it out of the park, you know. Hannah Kent or other people start off very young and um, or even Tim Winton if you want to go younger but you know obviously everyone has a different journey but my journey's been a long one it's a marathon I'm still going and then sometimes I'm pooped um, and wonder you know do I do I keep going because a lot of writers in Australia don't make a living wage out of it and I'm probably one of those to be frank with you um, and I've got the kids and um, most writers a lot of writers work while they write so mm. I said to someone the other day, probably I would say to that person who I was then, don't give up your day. I mean, I think I had to give up that day job, but find a do another day job that's going to support your writing, which is what I did for a long time. I worked part-time and wrote part-time for a really long time. And that's kind of the, the model probably that um, creates most balance and, and feeds you. So, yeah, challenging process, dealing with rejection. You have a really thick skin, a lot of grit, a lot of determination. And you need to keep doing it because it's who you are and you don't really have a choice. And that's where I'm at pretty much. Well, I'm, I mean, I enjoy it. Yeah. I'm glad all that is uh, very relatable to me. I'm glad that you obviously did keep, keep going and keep chip chipping away. I feel that, um, yeah, it's uh, probably one of the hardest things you can possibly do and the most isolating as well in terms of, you mentioned it before about locking yourself sort of away in a room and doing nothing but thinking. So no, you're really spot on about that. Um, so that's, 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 I kind of want to end Anna with just asking then what advice would you give to your younger self about before <laughs> you embarked on the journey? Some um, people have said to me in the past, I'd say to my, my previous self, you know, think long and hard about if you want to do it. And I think, God, well, but you're here, you're talking to me, like you've achieved, you've written beautiful things. Like, you know, would you really want to discourage your former self from, from wanting to do it? I mean, I can understand the hardships and I can understand the pain that you definitely spot on about the um, get a day job that kind of works around it. I myself worked for uh, nearly eight, nine years working in 24 seven rotational roster job. So working godless hours and running around that schedule. But um, 
Yeah, anyway, I'm hijacking it. So what, what, what would you say, Anna George, to your former self, or what, what would you, you say? I would say, um, okay, in addition to what I just said, I suppose, about um, what I would say to my former self, I would say do your research because, which would suit me probably, um, really understand what the writing life looks like because you don't get told that a whole lot. And when I did start in my professional writing course, there was one editor who came and told everybody the chances of you succeeding are very small and hardly any of you will be published. And she was really depressing. And that just fired me up and made me angry to prove her and determined to prove her wrong. But she didn't say, once you are published, you may not make very much money and the vast majority of people don't. And it's actually a very fraught and uncertain path. Um, she didn't talk about that. So, you know, you can't stop people doing what they love or expressing themselves in it's, it's kind of my purpose to write, I think. You know, mm. a day spent writing is a really well-spent day for me. Um, and that has always been true. But once you become published, you start becoming preoccupied with how many books you've sold or you know, how quickly you're turning your books over or putting them out there, whatever, um, or how much money you're making. And these are not helpful thoughts mm. um, writing. So um, I think... It's important to understand why you're doing it. Amy Tan is um, a writer that I used to go to lots of writing events in my local area pre-COVID. And I remember asking her as an unpublished writer about to be published, what advice have you got for someone like me? And she said, try not to forget why you're doing it once you're published. And I think that was really good advice because you do start to forget that and all these other things start taking on too much importance because you don't choose a writing life to become a rock star writer. You know, you don't choose it to become a millionaire because if you wanted to make lots of money, you'd do something else, right? It's not an efficient way to make a lot of money and it's incredibly unlikely that you will, but some people do it. It is like winning the lottery to get published and then it's like winning the lottery to make a real living out of a, as a writer, I reckon. Um, talk to other people and they'll go, no, hey, it took me two years and I'm terrific, but that's not been my experience. So I would try and say that to my younger self. But, you know, my lovely mum said, do you have to leave your law job? Can't you do that and write? And I was like, no, I have to leave, I have to leave. So, look, I probably did have to leave. So you've got to get the right job to fit. I just think do your research, get your people around you who are going to support you on that journey. And a lot of people give up, so many people. People I studied with, I've got hardly any friends from my writing course days who are still writing. Um, and they were really good writers, some of them. So um, it is, it's very common to give up. It's very fraught. You have to remember who you are and not load, freight it with too much meaning about um, who you are as a person if you don't become a superstar writer within 25 years, <laughs> you know. Um, it's not the way to go. It's not, that's not the path to happiness. No, I think you're right. I think you're definitely right. Um, I'll before you say similar stuff to myself. So, nah, spot on. Um, I'm actually going to deviate and go with one last question, Anna, because because of the themes within this book, and we've touched on this 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 feeling of hope with tipping. I'll, I want to then maybe go you one and say, what would you uh, want a reader to leave with the end of finishing tipping? What would you like? Would it be an emotion? Would it be a, a thought? What, what would you like to think? Inspired. I'd love a reader, readers to be inspired to look at their lives through fresh eyes and see what they can do to, you know, enhance, improve, um, realign how they're living with how they want to be living and whether that's at home or at work, um, feel 
that it, you know even small changes could be impactful and could um, lead to even bigger and you know better things or shifting you in the direction you want to go in. Um, so I would love people to be inspired and I would love them to also kind of leave with a smile or a bit of a, a, an, up, an uplift um, there and optimistic about it. Yeah, a little dash of joy. Well, that's how I left was, was the hope. There was the, it, was a, it was a pearl of hope. Um, so no, well done, Anna. Thank you so much for talking to me today on the program. Um, your book gave a lot of food for thought that I'm still kind of turning over. So I think that that's in keeping with what you were, you're aiming for there. So yeah, thank you for that. And thank you so much for talking to me on the program. Oh, lovely. Thank you. That was a really good chat. Appreciate it. So everyone, that was Anna George discussing with me her latest novel, Tipping. As you can see, we kind of started to really get into the nitty gritty of the big picture stuff there with the themes in which we discussed. So yeah, that was a really, really good, robust discussion. So thank you again to Anna George for talking to me on the program. Uh, as I said, I'll put the links to uh, Anna's page within Penguin Random House, her publisher, there so you can pick up not only tipping but her other two books as well and yeah check out those other books that Anna mentioned as well I wrote them down I uh, haven't looked at the recording or haven't listened to the recording as yet but I'm going to definitely check them out too because uh, I'm liking to think that we can prompt major societal change for the betterment if we all work together on this so yeah, I'll leave that food for thought with you and impart to you yet another earnest and sincere thank you for you listening to this episode. As always, thank you so much. I keep seeing the stats. I keep seeing you guys listening to all the episodes and going back right back to the beginning in November time, listening to the Monica McInerney, the Godmothers discussion as well. So again, thank you so much for doing that. Give me the patronage of the your ears. I greatly appreciate you listening and such. Uh, I can assure you I've got a hell of a lot more guests that are going to be coming up on the program in the very near future as well. So stay across the interwebs and the social medias because I'll be obviously posting about those as they near. But in the interim, I do humbly implore you all to have a lovely evening and to get your hands on a copy of Tipping. Thank you.